The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 154 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all the opinions expressed in this show are my own and not that my president or past employers. I would never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I were never knowing disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite cybersecurity topics of all time, and that is threat intelligence. And I personally think that having an effective threat intelligence program is really the tip of the spear for any cybersecurity initiative. And it's absolutely paramount to the CISO's success, you know, being the top information security executive for that organization. So for this segment, we're going to have the Director of Cyber Intelligence Strategy for Anomaly, Mr. A.J. Nash, with us this evening. So A.J. is a rock star in the threat intelligence community, folks. He's a cyber intelligence strategist and public speaker focused on building cyber intelligence programs that capitalize on disparate data and information to create and deliver tactical, operational, and strategic intelligence products to protect personnel facilities, data, and information systems. He has planned, designed, built, or consulted on the building and maturation of cyber intelligence programs for dozens of companies. AJ provides training on intelligence tradecraft and standards, consults with clients creating or improving their intelligence capabilities, assists in the creation of organization-specific intelligence requirements, and delivers presentations on the fundamentals of cyber threat intelligence around the globe. Now, AJ has a plethora of cyber intelligence experience, both in the public and the private sector, and we're going to be tapping into his knowledge tonight. So it's going to be a great episode. He honed his skills across 18 years of military service and defense contracting, serving in roles focused on intelligence collection, analysis, reporting, and briefing. His career included near-time intelligence collection and reporting in support of combat operations in multiple areas of operations, indications and warnings, tracking war criminals, battling human trafficking, countering improvised explosive device production and deployment, and combating nation-state, criminal, and hacktivist threats in cyberspace. How cool of a career is this, right? I mean, a lot of people would love to have this career. 
AJ's work has been delivered to military and government decision makers, including intelligence agency senior executives and directors, the U.S. Secretary of State, Congress, and even the White House. And although now in the private sector full time, he has worked for companies like Capital One and Symantec before joining Anomaly. He still occasionally consults with the intelligence community and maintains top secret security clearance with full scope uh, polygraph uh, involved to get that clearance, right? So AJ studied Serbian and Croatian while in the US Air Force. He holds a bachelor's of science in liberal studies, uh, as well as both a graduate certificate in servant leadership and a master's of arts degree in organizational leadership from Gonzaga University. So stick with us, folks. This is going to be a very cool discussion. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the show the Senior Director of Cyber Intelligence Strategy for Anomaly, Mr. A.J. Nash. A.J., welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, thanks, George. Great to be here. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that's intelligence. So let's benchmark for our crowd here who may or may not be in the cybersecurity business. We have a, a very large audience, and some people are just interested in cybersecurity. They don't do it professionally day, day after day after day. So what is threat intelligence in your mind? Can you describe it for, for our audience, please? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a good question, right? So there's a, a challenge in industry, actually, that I think a lot of people throw different terms around and sort of conflate the terms, right? So I, I generally look at it from a, having come out of the government background, I look at it from a government and military standard originally. Um, and so you talk about maybe data and information and intelligence is the best way to explain it. So there's a chart in Joint Publication 2-0 that, that actually really lays this out well. And essentially data is, you know, if I give you a list of IPs and URLs, for instance, um, information would be that same list of IPs and URLs with, uh, with a threat score associated with it. So uh, we consider it informed data or information, which unfortunately is where a lot of people live and they think that's, that's intelligence. But what we really need to do is get to intelligence, which is that same list of IPs and URLs, but you also add in the threat score, of course. And then you add in, it might be associated threat actors, tactics, techniques, and procedures, signatures, uh, tools, motives, you know, when, when architecture was hostile, when it was safe, when it was hostile, and, and even what might come next. So it's that holistic picture that gets you into the intelligence realm. And then when people talk about threat intelligence, it's specific towards uh, threats against, you know, us or others, right? So you talk about, you know, tying that, that holistic picture to like, um, tactics, techniques, uh, things we need to worry about. Uh, so that's, in a nutshell, sort of what we talk about when we talk about threat intelligence. I think when we talk to our audience and we tell them, people that aren't in the cybersecurity business, and we say that the government does intelligence and they have intelligence services and functions, I think they get that, right? They get that the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. government does intelligence. Why does a Fortune 500 company need intelligence? Like, what, what problems does threat intelligence solve for a Fortune 500 company? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And uh, to be honest, I spent a lot of time on this one. So I think you're right. I think people get, you know, the government need for intelligence, right? So it's been around for generations now, nation to nation interests. You want to know things, you know, as much about your adversary as possible, right? That's sort of the goal of intelligence. Um, and, and in the private sector, it's not that different. What's happened essentially is, you know, in, in an interconnected world now uh, where we all live, uh, everybody's at risk at some level. We're all connected to somebody or something. And there's adversaries out there. And most of us have something of value, whether we think so or not. Obviously, banks understand it best, right? We protect money. Um, but there's other ventures that also have things of value, personal information and intellectual property, things of that nature. So when you understand that you have 
a threat and you have risks, you have things to worry about, it's best again to understand the adversary. And what intelligence does, uh, you know, intelligence is the only way to become proactive when you talk about doing defense, right? So most organizations, if you're thinking cybersecurity, SOC, things like that, we have, you know, we have a SIM, we have network data coming in and, and we're, we're processing that and we're reacting to things that are in our environment. Um, but as long as we're just living inside our environment, we're never going to get off that, that wheel, that hamster wheel where we're just knocking things down. So what intelligence does is allows us to see things outside our environment and you start moving, you know, we talk uh, in the kinetic world, uh, if you think uh, of a timeline of left to right, uh, we always talk about trying to be left of the boom. You know, the boom is a terrorist attack or a bomb or something terrible. And if you're to the right, obviously it's reactive and it's really, really bad. And, and that's what I bring into the cyber discussions is we also want to get left to the boom, right? Is, you know, we've already been compromised. We're on the news. We got 24 hour operations, et cetera. We want to move left. And the only way to move left to the move, boom, the only way to become proactive is intelligence. We have to understand things that are going on around the world outside of where we are. We have to understand what adversaries exist and what their, you know, general practices are and what their target sets are. Who are they going after? What are their motives? Um, and we start seeing that. And you can even get bigger and talk about geopolitics. You know, what does uh, an embargo against Iran do from a cyber standpoint? Absolutely. You know, are they change their tactics, right? right. And, you know, it's North Korea, et cetera. So I, I think that's the bigger piece. And I think I think we're starting to see more understanding that in the private sector, that the risks are, are incredible. Um, you know, the barrier to entry for cyber is pretty low. Uh, you don't have to be uh, an incredible hacker to do damage to somebody or to steal information or to send ransomware or something like that. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Fortune 500s, Fortune 100s, you know, it, frankly, even smaller companies. But you really need to be building, in my opinion, an intelligence program. It's the only way to get proactive. So all sounds commonsensical. How, how hard is it to be proactive and then actually be predictive where you can actually predict that something bad's going to happen before it happens, right? Yeah. Being left the boom, <laughs> so to speak, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How hard is it? <laughs> uh, it's really hard. <laughs> you know, it's, that's, that's the hardest, hardest part, right? It's really hard. So, you know, and, and to, be, to be clear, you know, even in the government space, you know, with all of the classified information available and all the resources, it's still really hard. Um, you know, we often talk about, uh, I worked in areas where we talked about predictive intelligence, but it's a dangerous term. A lot of people don't want to use that. There is no crystal ball by any means. Um, you know, the best you can really hope for is to have enough available data and information to develop intelligence, to make assessments on likelihoods. Um, and, and it is hard. It, it takes time and effort. It takes a set of skills. Um, it's one of the things uh, I spent a lot of time in the private sector talking to people about is I think a challenge we've seen is as people start to accept, yes, we want intelligence, we need intelligence. The next thing is explaining that intelligence is its own career field. It's its own thought processes and training. You can't take your world's best in incident responder and say, that guy's going to run my Intel program. Now you're going to build another incident response program. So, when you're able to bring in talent of, uh, you know, obviously, obviously the government grows most of this talent, you bring in some folks who can help build these programs. There's also, you know, universities are building great uh, programs to teach this. And there's courses like, you know, SANS has a GCTI course. It's a great place to be. Um, you know, when you build those out, you understand it's a different skill set. Uh, and then you can start building from there. But the truth is, it's, it's hard. Uh, it's time consuming. It can be a bit expensive. You know, talent, uh, access, and time are sort of the three elements. Uh, tools is another big element. I throw it in with the access piece. But talent, access, and time are big elements you have to build out. Um, and then you also really have to discuss um, value, right? So, you know, leadership wants to know, what am I getting for my money? And when you talk about being proactive, that's a tough thing sometimes to get metrics for to measure. 
Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of organizations that live in the cyber world and they measure their metrics on their tools and, and things that they have in the SOC and they come with great metrics uh, usually. But in Intel, I tell people to start thinking about it more along the lines of how you measure your metrics for physical security um, or insurance even. You know, if you run a bank and you don't get robbed for a few years, you don't decide to fire the security team and shut off the cameras. Clearly, we don't need this. We're not in danger, right? You understand it's the risk of, of being a bank. You know, there's, there's an inherent risk. And it's the same thing in cyber. So it's a challenge. We are working on better metrics, I think, as an industry to help people understand the value of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard, man. Um, you know, yeah. it's job security for guys like us, but it's yeah. a hard <laughs> job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So cybersecurity is a, an ever-evolving industry. It changes so fast. We're always talking about how you have to be agile and flexible to be successful. How do you see the threat intelligence market changing? Like, What has changed over the last few years? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I, I think the changes I've seen at least have been good. Um, you know, I, I've been in the private sector now only about five years. So I'm still, I'm still figuring my way in the private sector, right? right. But even in that time, I've seen, I've seen great change. Um, I think we've moved from not even knowing what intelligence was to having some concepts of what it is. And large companies do pretty well with this. And knowing we need it, that's a great place. Um, I think we're starting to get uh, towards hiring the right people. Again, I still see organizations that, that start by hiring somebody who might be fantastic at their gig. Uh, they're just not an Intel person. And if, if they understand that and they hire other Intel people and they, they get that these are different careers they can do really, really well, but some don't. Um, but what I'm seeing now is, you know, the technologies are, are much better. Obviously, I work for a, com- a company in that you know, field. Um, you know, threat intelligence platforms are really valuable. Um, and then the interconnectivity. I think is the big thing we're starting to see people get is the systemic approach, you know, understanding that you have something like a SIM uh, inside your environment, right? And that's a great place to be, but you've also got to have that external knowledge. So you got to have something like a tip and you got to be able to bring those together, right? And form, formulate, you know, a unified approach so we can merge the internal and the external uh, views. And then SOAR is, you know, kind of a big part of this now being able to automate a bunch of this because there's just too much, you know, there's too much available for us to process as human beings. And there's too much too fast to keep up with the speed of cyber. So I think the technologies have been great. I think there's this industry is full of smart people building new, exciting, you know, ways to get things done faster, uh, better, eventually cheaper, I'm sure too. Um, so I think we're on the right path, you know, I, but it's, it's been a slog, right? There's still a lot of companies who are still at the basics of, I don't even know what intelligence is. Why do we need it? You know, I, I won't call anybody by name, but a few years ago, um, you know, I was at a different company and there was a, a prospect who said, uh, you know, we don't need intelligence. We monitor Twitter. We're fine. And so there's still some of that. That was a large company too, by the way. Uh, and there's still, that still some goes on. I still see it though. I mean, I, yep. that, that still goes on a lot. Yeah. We're, we're a ways away. I, and I think we're a good decade away. Uh, if you want an honest opinion on, so let, on let's go the opposite. Let's go the opposite way, though. Let's say you know some of these folks who are starting new intelligence programs tend to try to aggregate as much data as they possibly can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in your mind, is more data equal more desired intelligence outcomes? Yeah, that's a tough one. So I, I will say, you know, inherently Intel people are sort of hoarders um, yeah. uh, when it comes to access, right? So, yeah, you know, when somebody says, hey, do you want to look at this? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You don't want to miss anything. <laughs> that's right. So, and there's never <laughs> enough, right? But, but you make a good point, you know, is more always better. It, more good data is always better. So it's, it's being able to weed through some of that, right? So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, I, again, I, I, we have a threat intelligence platform, obviously, right? So we've got, I don't know, four dozen 
uh, vendors inside of our app store and we can integrate others too. Now, I, I don't have access to all four dozen vendors and I, I don't know if I would want it necessarily because uh, that would probably overwhelm me even in a great process and a, and a great uh, platform. Um, but you do have a position where you can, you know, create that compare and contrast, right? And figure out, and again, uh, somebody might have great access. It just doesn't matter to you. Um, so even if, even if it's great data, it may not be data you care about personally. So I think you do have to take the time to understand your requirements and your needs um, and then sort of, you know, work through that process and then do some research and say, who has what I need most and then get it focused in that area. So, you know, again, it talks about Intel requirements that people really struggle uh, to develop those. I think that's to me, that's the biggest challenge we still see in industry now is, is, is taking the time to develop our own intelligence requirements. Uh, and then from there, building out the right collection plan. So if you randomly pick, you know, hundreds of threat feeds, it won't necessarily help you uh, as much as if you understand what you need and you have 20 that are really focused on your needs. So you do want depth and breadth of access, but it tied to what your actual needs are, I think. So what kind of organizations use threat intelligence? We talked about Fortune 500 companies. You talked mm -hmm. about other organizations. I mean, there's out of the critical infrastructures. I mean, if you're a company that doesn't fall into a critical infrastructure category, do you still mm -hmm. need threat intelligence? Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, ultimately, I think everybody does, of course. Um, but where does it fit into your stack, right? I mean, so, Sony might be a good example. I mean, they were in critical infrastructure and they almost got their whole company taken down, right? By, exactly. by an adversary that they had no idea was their adversary. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, it, again, there's an organization and, and I know some folks at Sony, smart people and, and their recovery was, was pretty amazing. Um, but sometimes you don't realize you're a target until it's too late. Right. So I'm sure Sony had no preconceived ideas that we're going to make this movie. Yeah, that's absolutely. Gonna upset. absolutely. And it wasn't a dig at no, them. No, it was just an example all. of how, how people need exactly. Yeah. Right? And certain companies, even if you're not, critical no, it's a perfect example. I'm sure they had no idea they were going to upset a foreign nation and writing it, you know, doing this movie and we're somehow going to see cyber backlash. And a lot of people don't predict that. Right. Um, you know, so I think certainly, you know, infrastructure, right. Financial services, uh, retail, uh, again, entertainment industry, you know, we've seen a lot of that now, you know, not just the Sony, but there's, there's others, right. You know, Netflix should really be concerned. They have a good intent program and Disney has a, a big program, for instance. Um, you know, at this point, if you do business um, in an interconnected world, you probably have some need in this area, um, you know, especially if you're well-known. Uh, you know, if you run a single coffee shop in Dubuque, Iowa, Mm -hmm. you're probably less concerned. You know, I, I'd certainly, mm -hmm. you know, if I have a computer system, I'd still want to have antivirus and some of the basics. And if I have a point of sale, you know, um, system there, I still want to have security on it. Yep. I'm probably not going to run out and build an Intel program. Um, but for, for anybody who's doing, you know, international business, certainly interconnected business, larger industry, um, I think it's vital. You know, I, and, and we've seen plenty of examples where it ends up paying for itself on the things that don't happen to you. So what are the, some of the common mistakes that you see organizations making when they're trying to build an intelligence program or expand their program, mature it in some way, what do you see mm -hmm. go wrong? Like what, what are some of the common pitfalls that you can say, hey, these are a couple of things I would definitely try to avoid. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I know I already mentioned a couple of the big ones. So this is a good question. I, I think the biggest mistake I see people make is the wrong first key hire. Um, and it's, it's not for a lack huh. of wanting to make the right hire, right? All it's right. a lot of times, you know, we don't have an Intel program. We're going to build one. We got them on a momentum. We even have budget. We're ready to go. And, it, and it's Bob, you know, Bob's been the best IR manager we've had forever. And he's, he's a great guy and people love him and he's really, really smart. And he's just a perfect fit. We're going to promote Bob. He's the director of intelligence, but Bob's not an Intel guy. And for all of his efforts, Bob's likely to fall back into what he knows and does well. And Bob will hire three more Bobs. 
And lo and behold, a year later, you realize what you've built really is just another you know, IR team or, or you've built some semblance of an Intel team, but it's very tactical, technical, doesn't really get an operational strategic Intel, doesn't really move you left of that boom, right? And, and I've seen this happen a lot. It's good intentions, uh, tough results. And then sadly, you know, Bob and his whole team might find themselves out of work. Um, so I, I think understanding again that Intel is its own career field and getting that first key hire right uh, is big. Um, the next one I know I already mentioned a little bit too is intelligence requirements. You know, the other thing I see organizations do is, is they jump two feet into Intel. We're definitely going to do this. And they run out and they buy a bunch of stuff because they've got budget and they're excited and they really want to do good things. And there's vendors that are just hands out waiting to take their money. And the next thing you know, they bought all this access, <laughs> but they don't know how to use it yet. They don't know what they're doing with it. They don't have requirements. They don't have a, a system to process it. They're just overwhelmed with all this stuff. They spent a lot of money and they're not getting anything they can really tie to, you know, as a result. Um, so I think that's another key problem that we see, um, you know, is, yeah, I would say the, the key hire piece, the intelligence requirements are probably the two biggest ones. I guess the third one I would say is where you put your Intel team. Um, you know, right now, typically Intel teams live in the SOC. A lot of times they're even under like the defensive cyber operations, you know, the blue team. Um, I, I'm a big believer that that's a mistake. I get why people do it. it Maybe a good place to start, but Intel to me needs to be holistic, which means it needs to be higher up. You know, in the government space, I look at it and say, you know, what we're doing right now is like taking NSA and putting it under central command, which is in Florida and just handles the Middle East, right? If you did that, all of NSA's intel would just be about the Middle East. It's, it's not using all the resources to, to do everything. But if you move intel up, get it out of the SOC, have it report to the CISO, the CIO, maybe even just the, the C-suite, now you can start serving a much wider enterprise and getting into, into discussions of M&A and insider threat and HR work and, you know, executive protection and physical security. Security and you know a real big approach. And to be honest with you, it won't cost much more. I think you're spending a lot of money on the people and the talent and the access anyway. Uh, I think the the delta of spend from a company of building an Intel team inside the SOC to building a higher level team is much smaller than the outcome you're going to get from it. Now, I think um, a lot of people don't realize how much this intelligence overlaps with other domains: AML, regulatory intelligence, fraud intelligence, executive yep. protection intelligence. Uh, intelligence. Then I just don't see it. And, you know, they tend to think, okay, you know, well, these are the cyber guys. They're just going to do cybersecurity intelligence because they don't know anything about fraud or they don't know anything about <laughs> it's, you know, you laugh, right? Cause it's funny. Cause it, yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of chuckle at it all the time when I hear it. It's just, you know, and it's, it just goes on over and over and it's history repeating itself. Right. Yep. Over absolutely. And again, right. And I think it's a mistake to say that or to think and or to have separate intelligence teams as well throughout. Absolutely. The Right. I mean, yeah, no, I, I totally agree that? with that. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. I, I actually I've got a draft paper sitting here someplace I've never published yet. But, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I have a concept in the back of my mind is the, the rise of the CNO, the CINO, the chief intelligence officer. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to get there at some point where you have, you know, your physical security and, and your cybersecurity and your business intel. This is all going to be in one spot that rolls up you know, right to the CEO um, because you need a unified position, right? I, I've been in great uh, opportunities, you know, where I've worked with physical security. And physical security is, you know, I, I did a little bit of that when I was back in the Air Force. So I, I have some familiarity with the background there, right? And great relationships between cyber and physical security. Um, and, and generally speaking, if you like, you talk about that unified approach, right, where you build all these Intel programs into one program, and you start to have a chief intelligence officer that reports directly to the, to the CEO, sort of like you have the um, ODNI, you know, the DNI and the government space reports directly to the president. 
Um, I, I think you get that unified picture. And frankly, you can you can cut some of the duplicative spending as well. You know, if you're building these separate programs inside of yeah. threat, which is a subset of physical security, and you've got executive yeah. protection, which is a subset of physical security, and you've got your business intelligence and fraud and all these things that are separate. Sometimes you find out they're using the same systems, but they had to pay for their own separate licenses. Um, you can <laughs> no actually doubt. do better putting it together, I think. It's funny because when you find, you know, when you talk to some of the other intelligence units and some of these other organizations that aren't in information security, they're using information security vendors to get their intelligence, right? Exactly. Just, you know, hey, look, we got to transition to a commercial break here, but stick with us. Yeah. Folks, lots more to come here on, on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. We're going to be talking intelligence for a while. So, hey, if you are a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be immediately connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george at tf7radio.com. That's george at tf7, that's with the number 7radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, Senior Director of Cyber Intelligence Strategy at Anomaly, Mr. A.J. Nash. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. 
The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Senior Director of Cyber Intelligence Strategy for Anomaly, Mr. A.J. Nash. So, A.J., you, you were in the government space for a long time, just like myself. What made yeah. you to the <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, right. What made you move to the private sector, and what did you learn in that transition? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I was in the government a long time, man, about 18 years, I suppose, altogether. Um, you know, to be honest, um, you know, I'd wanted to move to the private sector for a while. I mean, I, I, did, uh, I did nine years and change um, active duty military, you know, great experience, uh, appreciate the opportunity and, and another you know, nine or whatever as a defense contractor. Um, and I, I just was looking for something different, I guess, to be honest. I'd, I'd done government a long time, 18 years in any industry, I think is a lot. Um, the government can be a little frustrating. Um, there's a lot of good work being done there and it, it's impactful, but you know, the government also can be a frustrating place to work sometimes. Um, you know, you're, you're a very small piece in a big, big, big machine, no matter how you look at it. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of looked a little bit at the private sector, to be honest, didn't know how to transition. And, um, you know, a friend of mine convinced me to finally build a LinkedIn profile and, and I was recruited out. So, um, you know, it was great getting, getting into the private sector. It's a, it's a culture shock. I'll tell you what. Um, you know, there's, you learn a lot of different things, right? You, know, you learn the politics are different. You learn that the structures are different. Communications are different. Timeliness is a different you know, concept in the private sector versus the government space. Um, so, you know, I'm glad I did it. I, I spent a lot of time working with folks thinking of transitioning now uh, to try to help them along. But there's, there's, a, there's a culture difference, right? You need to adjust to it. I think a lot of folks in the government space do come out um, if you spend a lot of time in the government, you're used to things being reg- pretty regimented and pretty orderly. And that includes communication structures, frankly. Uh, and sometimes you can find yourself saying things that you just think are normal communication. Hey, let's do this right now. Let's go, you know, whatever. And you realize in the private sector, there's a different way to communicate. Um, you know, people speak differently. People act differently. Um, probably overall better, frankly. Um, but it's different. So uh, I found that transition pretty interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, to be honest, in, in retrospect, when I look back now, um, you know, I wish I'd done some things different in my first gig in the private sector, to be truthful. You know, I, I learned from the experience. I think I did some things that I'm happy about and some that I look back and go, man, yeah, five years later, you realize that, that you might have meant well, but just the way you delivered the message or your thought process just didn't match with the culture that you walked into. It's, it's, a, it's a shock to get through. So I always encourage people who've been out for a while with the government in the private sector, you know, mentor people coming out, help them, you know, overcome some of those obstacles, you know, understand corporate politics. Um, you know, in the government and intelligence, a lot of times it's just the answer is the answer. Right. And I don't, I don't necessarily even have to sugarcoat it too much depending on who you're dealing with. 
Um, you know, in the private sector, you really have to work to build consensus sometimes with people who don't understand the question, let alone the answer, because uh, everybody's not Intel, everybody's not from the same background, everybody doesn't have, you know, decades of the same concepts, um, and also learn to stop speaking in acronyms, you know, things like that. So there's a, there's a lot of transition there. So I try to help people coming out now, and I encourage people who have been in the private sector a while, don't forget about how hard it was when you guys came out, and, and let's help other people, because the talent is there, and, and the private sector needs some of the experience we have out of, out of government space, uh, but we got to help people transition. Do you see a lot of people fail trying to make that transition from the government to the private sector? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, you know, I, yeah. fail is a harsh word. I, I, I get it. But I, I see people who go back. Um, you know, again, it's, you become institutionalized. Um, and some people really, you know, just aren't a good fit in the private sector. They can't make the adjustment. It doesn't fit them. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, you know, I'm a better fit probably out here than I was in the government, frankly. So um, I, I do see people come out and it just, it just isn't for them. Um, you know, and there's trade-offs, right? The government, especially in the classified environment, you know, one of the benefits that you don't think about when you're in there is when you go home, you go home. Listen, you can't take your work home. It's against the law. So your day is your day. In the private sector, there, there is no day at night. Everything follows you everywhere. And if you, you know, move up the ladder, all your phone's on all the time, you're doing a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I also can take three hours in the afternoon off and go golfing if I really wanted to. I don't, but I could. Uh, you can't in the government oh, space. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you have flexible <laughs> scheduling in the private sector, right? You know, if you want to go to the doctor, you don't have mother may I three different people in the government space and, you know, track all your hours by the minute or something. So there's trade-offs in both sides. I think the government offers a lot of times it's, it's a more structured approach. Um, you know, it's a little regimented, so it can be confining for people. But for some, there's a lot of comfort in that. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's for everybody. Um, you know, everybody has to find their own place. So I, I've seen people go out and boomerang back and, you know, it's fine. They've, they've taken a shot at trying something different and maybe it just wasn't their thing. You, know, you talk about structure a little bit, but do you find that the approach to intelligence is different in any other way outside of structure? Or is it really just really being that sort of, you know, disciplined, structured environment that, that makes the, the difference between the two cultures? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's still a lot of learning curve in the private sector. So, um, and that can be good or bad, depending on how you approach it, right? In the government, uh, you know, if you've been, if you, if you work at one of the three letter agencies, let's say, listen, right. everybody there who's been there for any period of time knows all the basics of intelligence. They all went through the same schools, all through the same training. You know, you walk into a room and there's a baseline knowledge of how to get things done. Um, you know, how to word things, how to, how to, you know, justify your, your approaches and your, in your positions. You can't just throw an opinion on paper as fact. You got to have supporting evidence, et cetera. Um, so there's some comfort in that, in that everybody has a pretty strong baseline in the private sector. A lot of times there's just little or none of that. So in the private sector, you may spend time teaching people basic fundamentals of intelligence, you know, intelligence community directives. I talk about those a lot in the government space. Everybody's read them. We all know them in the private sector. People haven't heard of them most of the time. Um, so there's, uh, there's a challenge in that sector start getting into Intel work. And if they don't have that background and they don't have that, um, that training, you have a hard time making sure they understand their assessments may not be strong, uh, because they're not supported by enough evidence. You know, people, people sometimes are, are quicker to jump to, I've got one or two points. That's it. I'm really, I'm sure this is it. Let's go. And when you've done practice for a while in intelligence, you realize, no, that's, there's a lot of counter in, information here. We got to look at, there's different positions. You really have to strengthen your argument. You know, it, there's a lot of different pieces. So um, I think it's good and bad, you know, for me personally, I've enjoyed it in the private sector because um, I've had a chance to work with a lot of people uh, and teach them some case, in some cases things, but I also learn a lot, you know, the private sector, 
because I'm working with different people, again, in the Intel space, you know, if you work at one of the agencies, you work in an Intel shop and you pretty much just work around Intel people doing Intel things all the time, um, unless you're in some fused positions. But out here, uh, you know, I work with brilliant people in, in areas I've never even, you know, thought of studying. So you talk to data scientists and people who are into machine learning and, and AI and, right. you know, so there's also a chance to learn a whole lot out here um, because everything's so close together and everything's moving really quickly. So, you yeah. know, there's, uh, I've seen good and bad in that, I think. Yeah, intelligence was where the cool kids hang out, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it depends on the org. I've also seen, you know, <laughs> one thing you don't see in the government when you're in an Intel shop is, again, because everybody has the same background, we all kind of do the same things. Um, you know, the, the conflict I always just see there maybe was like the, the Intel shop and the operation shop, the J2 and J3 or A2 and A3 or whatever. There's always a little conflict there, right? Intel people do Intel, operators you know, do operations, they actually act on intelligence. So there's always a little bit there. Um, and I've seen some of the same in the private sector. Uh, you know, in the security world, you have security operations there, hands-on keyboard, getting things done, and then you have Intel people. Um, but the conflict's you know, interesting in that it's somewhat similar, also quite a bit different, I think, because Intel is a growing field in the private sector. Uh, sometimes the Intel org gets a lot more money or they get a lot more attention, or a lot more shine. Um, and that can be frustrating for people who are just doing the hard work every day and have for a long time. Uh, so I've seen some interesting political battles uh, happen there sometimes that people have to watch for. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, overall, it's a it's a growing a growing industry in the private sector, and I, I think as we go on, it'll look more and more like the government space, frankly. So, how important is it for an organization to be intelligence led? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's vital. I think it's I mentioned before, it's the only way to get proactive. Um, you know, if you're not using intelligence and having that drive into your decision making, having that drive into your understanding of everything you've got access to. Um, I just don't see how you get left a boom. You know, I, I see organizations just live right at that wire. Um, and I just don't see a way to get to get proactive without being intelligence driven. You've got to be able to understand, you know, big context um, beyond your industry, beyond your geography. Uh, you got to be able to see technologies as they're developing, see trends as they're developing. Uh, so you can make the right moves uh, for yourselves. You know, um, you know, if you if you just get a little further outside of your wire, if you just get within your industry, even you know, if you're a bank and you you work with FSISAC, then you can see other banks hit before your banks hit, right? Uh, just that, as long as people start sharing, people don't do nearly enough sharing these ISACs. Um, just that is the beginning of getting outside of your wire. Your best opportunity to stop something from hitting you is something that hits somebody very similar to you. Um, you know, but then you get further out from there, right? You, ideally, you can look at things in other industries and other geographies because adversaries are, that's the greenest industry ever. Like they recycle everything. You know, once it's in the wild, they'll pick it up and use it on somebody else. So, um, you know, I, I think it's the only way, um, you know, to really get proactive though. You've got to be intelligence led right. and intelligence driven. Yeah. I mean, you have to make informed, critical business decisions. Otherwise, you're just throwing darts at the board, especially in the cybersecurity space. Mm -hmm. Should we be focused on the threat or more focused on the who is attacking us, right? So if you, yeah. think, if you think about threats this way, maybe application attacks, uh, network attacks, mobile attacks, insider threats, third party, mm -hmm. all that, you know, just go down the list. Let's say your top, maybe 10, like three or four of them are probably material. Um, those are the sort of the threat scenarios, threat domains, whatever. But should you be focused on that or actually the who break down your, your threat actor taxonomy and then the individual actors or group actors within those taxonomies? Yeah, that's, 
you know, that's a good, that's a good one. I mean, I, I'll be a little political. You, you need to worry about both, of course. But um, yeah. I think, you know, I think you kind of work from, from the, the technical to the who, right? So how do you assess yourself the best? I think you have to be yeah. worried about both too, obviously. I think, sure. you know, like one, one nation state uses different types of attacks and, you know, um, you know those threat scenarios that I laid out, they probably mm-hmm. use all, almost all of them to some degree, right? But, yep. you know, if you're looking at who your most likely adversary might be, the who could be beneficial, but the, the, the actual threat scenario itself, I think is, might be easier to assess. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that. You know, I think, I, I think when I talk to people about building programs, right. One of the other things we talk about is, you know, your crown jewels assessment and your CMDB, which most organizations really neglect these areas. You need to really understand yourself first. So if you understand yourself and you see what your challenges are, then you start applying that outward. Right. And, and then, like you said, you can start looking at, all right, well, these are vulnerabilities we have. These are software systems we have. These are hardware systems we have. So now let's start looking at, at how those have been compromised before. Right. So that's the technical piece. And then once you do that, you can start looking at the who's responsible for doing those things. I think the only reason to really care about the who, like there's really two reasons to care in my opinion. Um, one is you can do something about the who, you know, you actually have the ability to, to prosecute or, you know, strike back, which is really pretty much governmental. Um, so the other piece is the preventative piece. Again, if we work our way inside out, we know our risks, we know our vulnerabilities, we know our systems, et cetera. We start looking for, for those who've been compromising those. And then further out, we look for who those organizations are, who those people are. The reason we want to do that, in my opinion, is if we see a signature in our environment and we're able to trace it back and say, well, this is the org we think is responsible for this, we can then, because we understand them, look at, well, where else do we think they are in our organization? Where are they likely to be? What were their likely motives to be? What's next? We can apply things like you know, the cyber kill chain to their activities. So we may find them in one area of our environment and say, well, based on cyber kill chain, based on past events with this organization, here's the other three areas we should be looking for because this is where we know they're trying to get to. This is their motive, right? So I think that's important, uh, but I do caution people. A lot of times folks jump in and they want to go just nothing about you know, the, the what, and they go right to the who, 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 because it's shiny and it's flashy and it's cool to show leadership that, hey, we, we tracked this hacker down to his house and you know, in, outside mm-hmm. of Moscow or whatever it might be, right? Yeah. And that's generally a lot of wasted time, effort, and money. Um, just so you can put something really flashy on the board, but you haven't done anything. You can't do anything about that guy. He's, you're not going to prosecute him. Like, you can't do anything to him. So sure. you know, I think that's, that's where it fits for me, right? You really have to understand your environment and your needs and, and wh- how that relates. And then you can start working towards the who so you can understand the future stuff. So real quick, I have a, mm-hmm. and, and quickly, I have a, a follow-up question to that. Sure. I, I heard some very prominent cybersecurity experts declare that it's not important to understand who your adversary is. And specifically, they said they really didn't care about attribution, right? Mm-hmm. They're just this, you know, the old school, hard charging RCA risk executives, you know, who just want to mm-hmm. do the, the, you know, the analysis, uh, yep. root cause and just get right down to it. So where do you, where do you fall in that discussion? In yeah. That yeah. And, and, and that's a, that's a tough spot to be in because I'm going to gamble. They're probably, they're probably pretty prominent and smart people too. Right. So I'm, I'm going to say it though. I, I disagree with them. You know, I right. think, um, you know, I, I won't say they're wrong outright. I just, I'll just, I'll just say I disagree. I will. Um, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> there's, uh, like I said, there's, there's limited reasons to care about the who. I, I do think some people overstate it, and that's probably what they're latching onto is that there are folks who just spend so much time on the who that they don't even worry about the things they need to care about first, right? But ultimately, the who does matter at some level. If you want to be proactive again, or if you want to catch something in progress before it reaches its destination, you know, being able to apply the kill chain because you know who the adversary is and you know what they're 
what their plans and operations tend to be, right? Um, I do think people get preoccupied with the who though. And maybe that's more what these folks are, are concerned about is, is you spend too much time worried about the who because it is flashy and it does get attention and hell, it'll even get your budget sometimes, but it isn't your ultimate concern, right? So I, I think you work inside out, you work on the, on the what and the how, but I do think the who matters. Again, yep. if you're going to be proactive, the who gen- generally matters quite a bit. All right, AJ, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, Senior Director of Cyber Intelligence Strategy for Anomaly, Mr. AJ Nash. You're sitting to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet S-I-N-E-T Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Senior Director of Cyber Intelligence Strategy for Anomaly, Mr. A.J. Nash. So, 
AJ, in this segment, I just want to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and how that's impacted the cyber threat environment. What have been your observations? Yeah, man. Uh, you know, COVID-19, <laughs> like it's changed the world, right? And from yeah. a cyber standpoint, I think what we've seen, you know, interestingly, it's what you end up seeing a lot of times is whenever there's a current event, right? Whatever the big news is, uh, adversaries adapt to that, right? So it's a lot of the same tactics, but just reimagined for for a new environment. So, you know, a, a phishing campaigns that are COVID directed, um, you know, designed to, to seem like they're coming from health departments or their new updates on, on COVID activity. Um, we've seen a lot of that phishing and ransomware, you know, even going after health organizations, even organizations that are developing, um, you know, medicines that are supposed to solve some of this problem for us, you know, so that's, that's a bit of a change because adversaries understand, of course, they'll pay. Some said they wouldn't go after uh, companies developing vaccines. Some didn't have the same ethical concern, apparently. Um, so, you know, so we saw some of that. Um, you know, we saw a huge uptick in uh, registrations of websites that were clearly designed specifically for phishing, um, you know, thousands of websites that still hadn't been accessed last I looked. So there's more of this coming. Um, you know, this has been a long lasting um, pandemic. So as a result, it's been a long lasting news story and therefore it's a long lasting, you know, cyber event as well. Right. So we're still seeing a lot of that. Um, and then you have the increased risk for organizations that weren't prepared to go virtual. Uh, to go remote for everybody. You know, a lot of companies have a lot of remote workers, but very few had the kind they have now. So you had companies that quickly had to spin up um, better security practices. Some had to change their infrastructure. Um, and that opened the door for, for opportunity, right? You know, people aren't necessarily suspicious enough about emails and virtual communications as it is. And now you've got so much more of that going on. And, you know, we saw, you know, Zoom had to make changes to their architecture along the way as well. Um, so we've seen a lot of that, you know, but overall, Frankly, the best practices still work. You know, be, be skeptical of emails coming in, be skeptical of attachments. Um, you know, if, if it seems like it's urgent stuff from a health organization, you know, read the header, take a minute. Um, you can always go to the website yourself. You don't have to click on the link in the email um, and, you know, and kind of move on from that, right? It's, it's a big event, but now I think at least the panic of the event has sort of subsided. This has become the new normal, sadly. So uh, I suspect we'll see less people falling for the lures than did very early on. So another huge topic of discussion is election security. And yeah. I mean, and the threat that that poses, not only to the election, but to our democracy in general. So mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on cybersecurity around the election process? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a challenging one, right? So, you know, we, we have plenty of evidence that in 2016, you know, um, there were foreign nations that were capable of compromising uh, election uh, systems. Um, I, you know, whether we have evidence they actually did it or manipulated votes, is, that's a little bit more of a debate, but we do know that some of the systems can be compromised. Uh, we certainly know we have foreign adversaries who have interest in our election. Um, that hasn't changed. You know, the government actually didn't do enough to protect the elections, in my opinion, for 2020. So um, the adversaries still have interest and, and opportunity. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've seen, you know, the pandemic sort of changed things a little bit in that now you see more people are doing mail-in ballots and, and drop boxes, which are actually less susceptible, obviously, from a cyber standpoint. Um, it opens up a different avenue of approach, physical security and things like that. Um, but it's interesting that that developed as it did. I think it probably wound up thwarting some cyber concerns. Um, but, you know, you know, state and local elections have things to worry about as well. You know, we have... We have a challenge there. And some of that challenge comes back to supply chain uh, concerns. You know, where were these machines coming from? You know, who manufactured them? You know, what the validations are behind them? And, and every state runs their own system a little bit differently, right? So, right. you know, overall, I, I will say, you know, I have, I, I still think we have the best election system in the world. I think overall, I have faith in, in the elections. Um, but there's concerns, you know, like never before. We've, we've documented proof of adversaries interested in interfering in our elections that haven't been 
um, in my opinion, you know, properly de-incentivized. So I think we'll see more of that uh, going forward unless there's changes in, in the way the government approaches it uh, in the future. AJ, in a couple of minutes, tell us a little bit about what you do at Anomaly and, and what types of products and services you offer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Anomaly is a, a, an intelligence platform company. Um, so we have a suite of products. Uh, the, the flagship is ThreatStream. It's a threat intelligence platform, you know, brings together uh, thousands of threat feeds and, and about four dozen premium vendors right now into one environment where you can do your, your unified search and your investigations and intelligence production and your automation down to your endpoints and, and some of the security stack, et cetera, plugs in really well with uh, the SIM and, uh, and with store t- you know, products, right? So we get that automation, that unified collection. Uh, then we have a product called the Anomaly Match. Um, I tell people Anomaly Match sort of completes the promise of SIM. Uh, SIM is a fantastic technology, uh, but it, it can be challenged and overwhelmed sometimes. And we work with Anomaly Match to get uh, real-time connections of intelligence to network traffic so people have better context and also does an amazing job for incident responders when you talk about doing retrospective searches to find, uh, you know, patient zero. Instead of taking, you know, hours, days, you know, watching the SIM kind of grind it out, you can do it in minutes. Uh, so that's a cool technology. And then the third piece we have is something called Anomaly Lens, um, which really is a fantastic um, piece using natural language processing in the browser uh, to very quickly process everything we would be reading uh, to get the content out of it and make sense of it. And also can tie you back to whether this affects your environment, um, you know, uh, some of the other contexts on intelligence. So that's a good piece both for researchers who want to do research faster. It helps upskill some of the team. You know, junior researchers can work at the speed of senior researchers now, uh, but also for executives who spend a lot of time reading the news and need to understand, does this make sense? Does this matter to me? Is this just fluff? You know, is this just scare tactic news or does this actually matter to me? With this, you know, really simple tool, they can look and understand you know, is this something we're already aware of? Is this something we're already handling from an Intel standpoint? Does this even matter to us? Um, so it can it can cut down on wasted time and energy trying to chase down uh, shiny objects that just don't affect the, the industry itself or at least your your particular organization. Um, you know, and for my role, you know, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, my fingers are in everybody's pies in the company. I'm across a lot of things. So I, I do oversee our Intel team itself. Uh, but I also work in, uh, you know, work on the, work the marketing team. I work with, you know, customers. I do a lot of consulting work. I do some of the public uh, work like this here to get out and talk to people uh, on conferences and seminars. And, you know, I, I just like to help people, basically. You know, I, I've, I've got some experience that, that can be useful to folks. So my job is to get out and try to help people, you know, build Intel programs or improve their programs and, and you know, just talk about intelligence. So it's a great gig. I love my company. Uh, I got one of the greatest bosses in the world, frankly. Um, yeah, and I just, I just enjoy getting out and working with a lot of folks you know, building Intel programs with, with some great vendors out here. Awesome. You can't put a price on that. Sounds like some really cool stuff you're doing over there, brother. I appreciate yeah, you coming on the show, man. I mean, I, this has been a great discussion and I'd love to have you back. Uh, maybe we'll put you on an Intel panel if you're willing to do it. Um, I think this is one of the, the biggest uh, topics in cybersecurity. It, it's one of the most important topics for sure. I think intelligence is, is the tip of the spear. I'm always saying that mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, having a successful cybersecurity program, but this is really interesting stuff and we could talk about this all, I mean, all day, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah, but, man, I'll come back anytime you want me on a panel. I'm happy to do it. Like this is, this is a passion. I know it is for you too. Um, so yeah, man, anytime I'd, I'd love to chat more about this. Like I said, we could do it all day and, and this is, this is a big deal. You know, this is, this is going to make people safer and better as we do it. So anytime I can help, I'm happy to. All right. Thanks so much, bro. Appreciate you. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. 
Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 